And so now, Lord, we indeed, we ask you to be present in our midst. Come, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our ears to see you at work in the world. Thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, of your own self, Lord God, upon your people uh, at that first Pentecost. Refresh us again. Revive us again. Fill us again, we ask, as your people. And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, um, I'm going to walk away. Yeah, I realized I didn't even have my Bible. Can't get very far, can I? Last week we looked at, um, we kind of did an overview of the whole book of Acts. One of the things we're going to be doing, we're going to go fast through Acts. Did you see that? We're doing about a chapter a week. So hold on to your hat, buckle your seatbelt. We're going to, we're going to go quickly. Um, but one of the things to remind you about Acts and Luke is that they are volumes one and two of a work that goes together. The author is the same author. And what could be said about that is that volume one could be described as Jesus' ministry while he was on earth through his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. And then um, we could say then that Acts, chapter, uh, Acts as volume two of, of this work of Luke, this um, scripture that he consciously knew he was writing. He was aware that he was writing scripture in the continuity of salvation history. And so Acts is volume two, and volume two could be described not just as the Acts of the Apostles in the early church, but rather the Acts of Jesus Christ in his bodily absence from earth. Uh, because Jesus is working in and through his disciples through the early church. And that's one of the things that Acts shows so clearly, that the power of God is on those first disciples so mightily that they can't take credit for what's going on. There are miracles. The preaching is incredible. The, um, there's unity. Um, they're sharing common goods. Things, it's an amazing, miraculous ability on the part of these human beings that comes about only through the work of God, right? So it is the Holy Spirit's work in the midst of those believers, uh, those first believers of Jesus. So it could be said that rather than it just being the acts of the apostles, it's actually Jesus' work. Jesus' work while he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Because the transition between volume 1 and volume 2 is the ascension. In Luke 24, at the end of Luke, we have Jesus ascending. He blesses the disciples, and up, up, and away he goes. And then in chapter 1 of Acts, Luke retells this ascension, um, the story of the ascension. So there's this overlap between volume 1 and volume 2. And in the, um, so in chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus ascends to the Father, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. He is seated, his body, this is what's baffling. The body, the raised body of Jesus Christ lives on in heaven right now. And that's one of the neat things about how, well, where are we and how does the Acts of the Apostles apply to us? Well, we are still in the same age of time as the Apostles. We are in this messianic age where Jesus is at work in our midst. Even though he is not bodily present with us, he is present by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to see today is that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon those first disciples in um, fulfillment of prophecy, in fulfillment of the promises that God made of old to his people Israel. 
So what we're going to see in, uh, is in this Feast of Pentecost, there was actually a precursor to Pentecost as we know it, as the Christian feast day. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday, a festival of harvest and a feast of harvest. And as time went on, and I've put, you can go on your own and look up these references, Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 16, talk about this feast of harvest that is called the Feast of the Weeks because it occurred seven weeks after Passover. Fifty days after Passover came Pentecost in the Jewish counting. And Pentecost was a Greek word that they used to talk about this festival as they got more Greek speaking as time went on. So by the time of Jesus' day and age, they did call it Pentecost. And by Jesus' day, the Jews understood the Feast of Pentecost to be associated with an event in their own salvation history as a people. They associated it specifically with something that happened after they had been brought out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. They had been um, brought out specifically to worship God on his mountain. They went to Mount Sinai, and there at Mount Sinai, Moses met with God and gave them the law the Ten Commandments, and all of the different applications of the law, and the ways for how to build the tabernacle. But the giving of the law, the covenant that God made with his people Israel, happened at Mount Sinai, and they wanted to celebrate it. And so they celebrated it, and they remembered it during this feast, this Feast of the Weeks, this Feast of Pentecost. And so because they associated it with this event in their own history, um, it is fitting that um, that at the, the Christian Pentecost, at the first Christian Pentecost, at the giving of the Holy Spirit, there is this sense of fulfillment of these promises of God that he would make a new covenant with his people. Um, so I'm just going to read to you from Exodus 36:27, and then I'm going to read aloud to you from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 4, 34. And so just listen for this promise that God would make to his people. Um, so Exodus 36:27, And the Lord is prophesying through the prophet Ezekiel. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the promise of a new covenant where the law wouldn't have to be written on stone tablets because every person would have internalized the law into their own heart and they would somehow, um, somehow some aspect of uh, the sinful human nature would be overcome. They, they believe that, some, that whatever in us prevents us from obeying the law, obeying God's law, would somehow be overcome at the advent of this new covenant that God promised to make with his people. So there's that one. And then Jeremiah 31. So again, sorry, I'm going to read it to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, 
and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a beautiful promise. promise of forgiveness of sins that the Lord would bring about, and the promise that, that uh, in this new covenant there would be a greater freedom um, there would be obedience to the law out of um, joy and gratitude and not out of compulsion. So there's this promise. And the promise um, of this new covenant is fulfilled through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those first believers. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament um, had very specific roles. You see the Holy Spirit all throughout the Old Testament. You know, when you start to think, I was teaching on the Trinity to ninth grade girls earlier this week, and it's like, well, how do you talk about the Trinity when you're talking about looking at Scripture? There are very few references in Scripture to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit altogether. In fact, I think there are only two that I know of. And they're very minimal. It's very quick, and it's a passing reference, and no explanation is given. Darn it. But what you see is that from Genesis all the way through to Jesus' birth, there is this expectation, there is a sense of there being... Um, God, Yahweh, but there is the Word of God. And John, we, when we talked about, when we studied John, John in his Gospel makes this Word, talks about Jesus as the Word made flesh. So we hear about the Word of God. It is by the, um, even at creation, it's by the Word of the Lord that the heavens and the earth are made. It's almost as though he speaks and his Word in leaving him, leaving his mouth, becomes almost like this other entity, is this other entity separate from him. Um, that's sort of this understanding within the Jewish mindset that's um, codified throughout, their, um, throughout the centuries of Jewish belief. And they, and they started to attribute wisdom to the mouth of God, wisdom in God's word spoken. Um, so there's a sense of precursors to Jesus throughout the Old Testament as though they're trying to get at something they don't quite understand yet. And then with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is also present in the Old Testament in a powerful way as a part of God's own nature, but almost as a separate entity as well. In um, the creation account, it talks about the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters out of the chaos of nothingness. God, um, by the power of his Holy Spirit, brings forth order, um, brings forth beauty and life. Um, brings forth creation. So we see the Holy Spirit and the Word of God present at creation. And the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament you see coming into play and being mentioned specifically when the Spirit of God rests upon specific individuals for specific tasks. And there are big, there are big three, three big tasks that would um, almost always throughout Scripture talk about the Holy Spirit resting upon these people. And those three big tasks are the roles of being prophet, priest, and king. Throughout Israel's history, and as we read the Old Testament, we see that kings are anointed. Remember that Samuel goes to anoint a king. Um, the prophet Samuel goes to anoint a king, one of Jesse's sons. And it's not the, the beautiful, tall, handsome, older, strong brothers. No, it's little David who's out in the field tending the sheep. He is the one who's anointed, and the, it's said that the Holy Spirit rests upon David. Um, it even said that the Holy Spirit rested upon his predecessor, Saul. So Holy, the Holy Spirit is um, given to kings for their role, 
as leaders of Israel. The Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament is given to the priests. So when Aaron is anointed and his sons are anointed, there's this anointing of oil, as with the kings, and there's this sense of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, empowering them to, um, to fulfill their role, to give them strength beyond themselves to do their calling to walk into their calling. And the same is true of the prophets. Every prophet, almost every prophet, describes the spirit of the Lord being upon them um, and this experience of being empowered to speak from God's own heart, um, that God's Holy Spirit empowers them to speak out and speak the mind of God to the people of God. Any questions about that? Kind of, I've added also an artist. There's one other kind of person in the Old Testament, do you know who it is? Yeah. Yeah, Carol, yeah, tell was, us. I can't remember his name. Bezalel. The mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was to do the craft yeah. of, of the, you know, like the, of the lamp and all that other stuff. As a person who has been an artist at different points, you know, whether performing or visual or dance or whatever it is that I've been a part of, I, I take great joy from knowing that God loves beauty and he creates beauty in creation. He delights when, in us when we create beauty around us, in whatever way that is. But he specifically sends his Holy Spirit upon Bezalel, who is um, executing the plans for the building of the tabernacle in the Torah and the Old Testament. And so that building of the tabernacle, God wanted his spirit to be upon him so that he would create beauty even more beautiful than he could create on his own, in his own human ability and human strength. So God sends his Holy Spirit to empower him to create things beautifully. Isn't that neat that there's that added one? Yes, Lenore. Yes, please. Oh, yes. Um, did you, his name was Bezalel. Yeah. B-E-Z-A-L-E-L. And I'm sorry, I don't have a scripture reference for you on that, but I can find it if you'd like. Yeah, if you Google that, you'll find it, or if you search for it. Um, or if you look in the back of your I might be able to find it. Wow, we're all sitting right here. Silence, silence. Any other questions about that? Mine does not have him in it just yet. So I'll find it for you at the end of the class, okay? I have one comment. Yes, please. You know, the, the theory of the Trinity is one of the issues between Eastern and Western Yes. Yes. Well, we have one God who makes who is three persons. One God, three persons, and it's a mystery. But that's one of the things that's amazing about this. And I did say this this week is that when we talk about God in the public forum, it, one of the things we have to realize is we don't all agree. All of the monotheistic religions do not agree on who God is or what he does. I have a friend who was, um, who's been asked to say something in a wedding of a friend of hers who um, is not a, who's a nominal Christian and is marrying someone who's Jewish, and this friend wanted her to um, say something very Christian, but don't talk about Jesus, and don't talk about, um, what was the other thing she was not supposed to talk about? Uh, she said, don't, you can't mention Jesus, but we want it to be Christian. And, and the thought was, well, can't, you can't really do that, but okay. Um, there is, and so we want to respect those other religions and um, live in charity with them and live in love. And there is a sense in which I do think God uses 
that starting point of monotheistic belief in, him, in, in a, one God and uses it as a jumping off point for revealing to people about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as made known in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Because the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible. That's what they read. And so um, when we look at it, we see things like God speaking creation into existence, the Holy Spirit at creation. Um, and so we see, we can read back and see the Trinity present in the Old Testament. And that's something with our friends who are Jewish or Muslim, we simply pray. Pray that the Lord would reveal himself to them in all of his loving glory. And part of his loving glory is that he is three persons, one God, a community of divine love, a self-sacrificial submissive love that says, no, after you, you be glorified. And we talked about this a lot when we were looking at John's gospel, that John says, I came to glorify the Father. The Father is to be glorified. And then it's the Holy Spirit gives spotlight to Jesus. And this is one of the things that we'll see today. The Holy Spirit is going to fall upon these first Christians. And when the Holy Spirit falls, the Holy Spirit gives glory to Jesus. Peter starts to preach, and he's saying, this what you see right here, this is not about this. This is about Jesus. And he starts to tell the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, glory, and all of the promises of God that are fulfilled through faith in him. So even in the midst of that first most glorious charismatic experience with tongues, and then they were going to have shared common love and prayer and um, fellowship and then also we're going to see throughout Acts, great miracles are being performed in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is exalted and lifted up. And that's one of the things about the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. No, no, I don't want to be on stage. Let's point to Jesus. Okay? So we're going to see this, this Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as being upon prophets, priests, and kings what we're going to see is that the promise is for all God's people, not just people with those specific roles, and indeed that all of God's people as the body of Christ are called to be, remember what it says in the New Testament, a holy priesthood. There is a sense in which those specific roles, that were, and there are specific roles within the church, and yet each believer in Jesus has gifts for ministry, um, gifts for ministering to other people in Jesus' name. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to walk into those gifts and to do things even that we'd be so surprised at ourselves for doing, that we can say, God did that. I did it, but it was really the power of God working in me. Okay? So let's, I, my goodness, we're, we've got, we're so far in, and we're only just now going to read. We're going to read all of uh, not quite all of Acts. We're going to read Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to go all the way to verse 41. And so what we're going to do, if, um, if this is your first time visiting, just know that what we do is we just read a few, I'll read a few verses and start us off, and then when I'm done, someone else can just pick up the baton and read a few verses, but keep it to two or three verses so that a lot of people get a chance to read. And something nice about that is that we're going to have different translations read aloud. That's okay. Just follow, on, follow along as best you can. Okay? So starting at chapter 2 of Acts, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them 
and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Thy presence. 
Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, that he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him and him that he would place on his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see in here. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. <clears throat> Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles. Brothers, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of Jesus, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are far, far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. <clears throat> with many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wonderful. That's a lot. Anything you notice as we read that just now? Anything that jumps out at you that you might have never noticed before about this passage? You're right. It is universal. John Stott says that's one of the big three about what it is. So bravo, gold star to you, Lenora, for being on the same page as John Stott. Anything? And by universal, what, what you mean, if I could just explain that, you mean that this is for all people. The Holy Spirit is for all people. And we'll get into that when we look at Peter's sermon. Because his sermon is an explanation of what's happening. Thank you. Anything else? The foreknowledge of God. Yes, of course he knows. But what's so great about God knowing in advance what he's going to do is that he lets us in on it sometimes. Sometimes we get a little peek into what he's going to do. And that's what he did for those prophets. So um, Peter spends most of his sermon quoting and then explaining the prophets and the Psalms and the prophecy through the Psalms and through Joel about what would happen. Peter finally gets it. He does finally get it. Well, he does, he's still, you still see him acting very humanly at different points, even in the life of the early church after the coming of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that's so amazing is they would have been there. We don't know if they were in the upper room. We don't know which room they were in, but they were in some kind of house at some point. And then what happens is they get out of the house. Luke does not tell us how they get out of the house, but suddenly they're outside and there's this big crowd. Somehow when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they get out of the house. And, you know, I think about them during Jesus' crucifixion, how they kind of, I picture the men especially, because the women were at the foot of the cross, the men huddling 
in the upper room, afraid, and rightfully so, that Jesus' fate would be their fate. They didn't want to be crucified, and so there they are, fearful in the upper room. And when the Holy Spirit comes, they get out, they're, they're pushed out of that house. They're pushed into um, a very public place, and Peter, fearful Peter, who denied the Lord, is so bold. That could only be the work of God, right? So, and it gives us courage and hope for when we are fearful and don't have the strength to do what we would like to do for the Lord. So, um, let's start with the, the, when we look at the content, one thing, one point I want to make, and this is something for you to go and look at on your own if you'd like, because um, what you would see if you read all of those passages, but especially if you looked at Ezekiel chapter 1, you see these um, manifestations of God's presence in the midst of his people in each one of these passages in a different way. But in Ezekiel 1, it's a great one because um, I remember taking a course while I was at seminary with um, Erica Moore, who was our women's retreat speaker last year. So if you went on the women's retreat, you got to hear her speak. She has her PhD in Old Testament, and she's brilliant. And she did her dissertation on the book of Ezekiel. Whoa. And so um, she knows the Hebrew, and she was saying the Hebrew in Ezekiel chapter 1 is so choppy and discombobulated because he clearly had seen something that words could not express. What he saw when he saw the presence of the Lord was so unlike anything he had ever seen, he could only use analogy to describe it. He would say, it's like this, it's like this, no, and then it was like this. And he's patching together these analogies, and somehow we can get a picture in our minds of what he, somewhat what he must have seen, but it's still very mysterious. And that's a little bit what we have here. So what I'm going to have you do is, um, could someone, I'm going to get my marker, and if someone could just read um, the first four verses. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Can you read it again? So can someone else read it again? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit that began to speak in other tongues that the Spirit gave them others. So they were in the house. They were in the house. Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. Okay, first of all, I put like because there are two analogies. Do you hear the first analogy? There was a sound, and the sound was like a mighty rushing wind. But but what what but Luke is doing is, it wasn't a sound, it wasn't wind, but it was like wind. Wind was the closest thing he could get to what the Holy Spirit sounded like. So neat to think, what does the Holy Spirit sound like? Well, 
can only give us an, al an analogy. It's like wind. What's the other analogy? Do you see the other analogy in there? Say it again. Yeah, it's like tongues of fire. And you know, I've, um, I love artwork, and I love all the beauties of artwork, but I've seen some 19th century paintings that show these tongues of fire, and they're very tame. They're like, there's like, boop, a little tongue right there, hanging over the person's head. It just doesn't sound like the mighty rush, rushing wind, and tongues of fire, fire scary. I wouldn't want fire hanging over my head. I, I mean, it, it the, the image and the, some of the artwork throughout the Christian era is so tame. And um, the tongues of fire, they weren't actual tongues of fire. There was something like a tongue of fire resting on each one of these disciples, which is so mysterious and kind of cool. But so the disciples are, there's a lot of repeated language here, and that's important, um, that, that as we try to understand what did this look like, what did this sound like, what actually happened? Well, the disciples are sitting in the house, and the tongues of fire came and sat on their heads. They're sitting, the tongues of fire sit, and then they start to get up and move out. The Holy Spirit filled the house. Well, it also says that the Holy Spirit filled the disciples, doesn't it? And these are all the same words that Luke is using. And that's important. He is being very... He's showing the beauty of this image, the beauty of this event in the way that he tells it. Um, then the tongues came, tongues like fire, and then it's the same word for what starts to come out of their mouth. What starts to come out of their mouth um, is language, human language that they didn't, in their own strength, know how to speak. And so God is accomplishing his purposes through them in this moment of filling, filling um, these apostles with his Holy Spirit. So, um, so this language is interesting, and the response, well, first of all, what happens? They get, somehow they get out of the house, right? And the crowd that's gathered there for the festival, these are not Gentiles yet, but we know that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles soon, and certainly by the end of the book. But right now, at this point, what we see, these are Jews and those who have converted to Judaism from other religions who are um, righteously going up to Jerusalem. They lived all around the Mediterranean basin. And there they are. They're going up to Jerusalem in order to worship at the temple for the Feast of Pentecost. So they're already there. Jerusalem is teeming with people. And um, they happen to be there. And they start to hear the disciples speaking in their own language. And these, um, all of these places that are represented, they are indeed all around the Mediterranean basin. So they start, um, start over in Babylon. That area, what is now modern-day Iraq, is mentioned in these nations, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. And then they head toward Palestine, Judea, and then towards Asia Minor, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Asia and then Phrygia and Pam Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belong to Cyrene. He's covering all of the Mediterranean basin, Lucas, in the way he's reminding us of where these people were from. They were from the whole world, as the first century <coughs> church knew the world. This was the world that they knew. These were all the people that they knew of. I mean, it's not totally comprehensive, but the view is, is we're getting a picture of universality, exactly like what you said, Lenora, that all nations are beginning to be able to hear the good news about Jesus Christ in their own language. And this is something about Christianity that's amazing. Do you know... Um, 
we are, we are all about translation. We're okay with translating our Bible. You know, there are, um, and again, not, not to disparage them for this, but the Muslims don't allow a translation of the Quran. You cannot, if you're reading the Quran, it has to be in Arabic, otherwise it's not a translation, or it's not the real Quran. They consider it an interpretation. But what's amazing about the Christian God, our God delights to translate himself to us, to meet us where we are here on earth. Jesus is born on earth. Our reconciliation happens on earth when Jesus goes to the cross. Um, and then here, I know, it's funny, next door. Here, <laughs> they're preaching. Speaking, in Speaking of the gospel. Um, here in Pentecost, it's almost like we see another incarnation. It's not another incarnation. It's just the descent in full measure of the third person of the Trinity. God coming down to earth. Um, they're really working out. It's good. Uh, and they love the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's it. Uh, so the Holy Spirit comes down and dwells, fills these um, first believers in Jesus. That filling is an important part of this coming of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to go back to Susanna's artwork and Pace and Sailboat Races, which you see on your outline. I'll do that at the end because that's more personal. So as we look at the reaction, what do people? how do people respond to this Amazing sight and sound. What does the crowd do? They're amazed, and then some say, well, some are cynical. They're just drunk. They might be. <laughs> but, but these first apostles, that's the first thing Peter says. He gets up and he says, no, 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 no. These aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. There's no way. Um, and then he goes on, but that's a good opening for him. There's, he goes on to talk about what is in fact happening. Um, and so Peter's biblical interpretation is um, in his sermon, he is, he is getting up and he's speaking and he's interpreting scripture. This was the standard form of biblical interpretation in that day and age. You would take an Old Testament passage and you would, um, you would basically interpret that Old Testament passage in light of its fulfillment. And that is exactly what he's doing here. And so he chooses, somehow he, he knows by the power of the Holy Spirit, which verses from the Old Testament to choose. It's, they're so beautiful. And in the first passage, he chooses. He chooses from Joel this prophecy from chapter 2 of Joel about the last days about the eschaton, about the final days, the expected days, which were associated specifically in the Jewish mindset with the coming of the Messiah, with the coming of their Christ, with the coming of the king that they hoped for. They had hoped that a king would restore the kingdom of the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah, um, that they would be once again a world superpower, and that David's heir, great David's greater son, as we sing in one of our hymns, would accomplish this in their midst. And so what Peter's saying is, yes, this Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah you've been waiting for, but he didn't do what you thought he would do in a limited worldly sense by setting up another geopolitical kingdom. No, what he's done is something far greater. And we know it based on this sign right here of all these speak people speaking in your own language. And so what he does is he talks in Joel 2. The thing about this um, passage from Joel 2, we see in the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And that's that universality that Lenora was talking about, that there is um, this promise that the Holy Spirit wouldn't just be for those prophet, priests, and kings, and Bezalel for these specific purposes, but through faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is for all those who believe in him. And then Joel goes on to say, how much of all of those? Well, the, the male and the female, sons and daughters, very specific about making clear it's male and female, young men and old men. So um, the Holy Spirit is poured out regardless of gender, regardless of age. And then the last one, even on my male servants and female servants, regardless of socioeconomic status, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And what Acts is going to show us even is that the Holy Spirit comes, and this is going to be a big surprise to those first apostles too. We're going to watch in the next several chapters as they grapple with this, the Holy Spirit is poured out regardless of ethnicity and race. And that's going to be a really interesting thing as we get through. They thought the Holy Spirit would only be for them, the Jewish people. But the promise of God is for all people regardless of ethnicity. And so that's one of the themes of the book of Acts that we're going to see in the successive sermons. So the last days are here is what Joel says, and the Holy Spirit is not going to be poured out in a trickle on certain people, but the image here is of a torrential tropical rainstorm, this flood, this downpour of the Holy Spirit just rushing down upon uh, those who believe in Jesus. And so within that image of a downpour, it's, we get this idea of generosity, that, that it's, um, fl- there's a floodedness to that. And in, uh, g- under that thought, there's also the idea, what happens when there's a floodplain geographically or geologically, or when um, there's um, a lot of rain Well, sometimes I overwater my plants, and that's not good. But (laughs) there are certain places where I lived in western Massachusetts was in a floodplain. It was historically this place where the Connecticut River, this valley where the Connecticut River had overflowed its boundaries. And so the, um, the soil all around the river was so rich, anything could grow there. And in fact, actually, Hadley, Massachusetts, and Northampton and those areas around there are known for their produce, specifically for their asparagus. While I lived there, I found out their asparagus is known for being the best asparagus in the world, and they fly it over to Paris on the Concord jet. Or is this the Concord that's the fast jet? Yes. So they they don't have it anymore. Well, they used to fly it over to Paris. Just apparently, that's what they told me. Really good asparagus. So fruit comes through um, an excess of water and an abundance of water. So there's this idea of spiritual fruit being formed in the lives and the hearts of those who believe in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the generosity of God's own spirit given to us. There's a sense of finality here. Can't get it back in the bottle. Once the Holy Spirit is unleashed once and for all at Pentecost, Now the Holy Spirit is available to each believer. And we each have our own mini Pentecost when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The promise of God is for you. You receive forgiveness of sins and the promise of the Holy Spirit. Those are the two things that Peter underlines in his sermon. Through faith in Jesus, we receive forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's for all people. It's um, generous and uh, bears fruit in our lives and the lives of other people, and it's final. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. I mean, the Holy Spirit back in 
heaven. The Holy Spirit is here now on earth. Um, and we, we consider, we know this age to be um, the age of the Messiah, the Messianic age, this la- these last days. Um, were known to be, they believed then that this would be um, in the future. For them, it was in the future. And we know that there's something coming in our future, and that is that Jesus will return. And that's what we found out last week in chapter 1. Jesus will return. But between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, we live in the same age as these first apostles, in this messianic age, this age where Jesus is exalted as Lord. We believe in him, and we know and trust that he will return and renew all things on earth. When when Jesus returns, and it shows this in the book of Revelation, it's not that we'll be spirited away, and have pie in the sky, and we'll become spirits with, or angels with wings. Or No, 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 no. God, upon Jesus' return, will bring heaven down on earth, and God himself will dwell on earth and renew all of the earth and raise our bodies from the dead. So that's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're hoping for at the end of the Messianic age. But in the meantime... We live in this life of the Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit, and we give glory to Jesus. And this is the second part of Peter's sermon. As he's talking and quoting from Psalm 16, quoting David, he's trying to help them understand that Jesus, and he keeps saying, this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, remember the one 50 days earlier who died here in Jerusalem? Him? Do you guys remember him? That's what he's saying to this crowd. Well, that guy, he is the Messiah, and he is not just the Messiah, but he is also God. Peter is pointing out that Jesus is not just the Messiah that they had hoped for, but he's more than just a human being. He is God. And he's showing, he's saying the proof of this is the resurrection. That's how we know that Jesus is God. He was God before the resurrection, but we know it because of the resurrection. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God You crucified, but God raised him up, in verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so David prophesies about, um, he quotes David's prophecy about Jesus' resurrection, and then he goes on to say um, that Jesus now is exalted at the right hand of the Father. I'm skipping down to verse 33. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Almost as though the father had said to Jesus, that's right, you're raised from the dead, you're right here at my right hand, now unleash the spirit upon your followers. I give to you the Holy Spirit now in a new way. You, Jesus, pour out the Holy Spirit upon your followers. And, um, and he says in verse 30, 33, he has poured out this, this Holy Spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so his final point, know for certain, know for certain that this Jesus is Lord and Christ. He's both the Messiah and he's Lord over all. And he commands your belief. He demands your attention. And not just in a a lordly way, but in a gentle way. And so when they hear this, they're cut to the heart. Their hearts are pierced by this knowledge of what God has done for them in Jesus. That he has loved them so much that he would die and then rise to new life, accomplish their forgiveness of sins through the blood of his own body, through the sacrifice on the cross. And then that um, forgiveness of sins and also this promised Holy Spirit are available to all believers. 
So what then shall we do? And Peter says, well, repent and be baptized. There is this sense in which this conversion is individual. There, it involves individual repentance and uh, recognition that um, we, like, we would desire a new life for ourselves. It involves turning from old things. And I think that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance because I'm constantly doing things that I don't want to do. And this is Romans 7 all over again. The old Deborah, I know that there's a new Deborah. And when I do great things, I'm like, yep, that's the new Deborah by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's still the old Deborah. And I'm like, well, Lord, would you change me from that? I don't want to do that anymore. And repentance, the, the word for repentance is a turning. So I do think of that turning and converting is a lifelong commitment. It's a commitment that you make once and you, you commit to it again and again, just like marriage. You say, I will, when you say your vows. Not I do, because you do in that moment, but you will have to say I do many times over in the course of a lifelong marriage. You will have to say, yes, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. And so that's why at marriage it's I will. I will say yes. I say yes now, but I will say yes even when it gets difficult. And so as a Christian, um, we say, I do, and we say, I will. Yes, Lord, you are my Lord, and I'm going to continue to turn from um, the old me and the things the old me does and to you. And God gives us grace in that. So there's, and that grace is made manifest through baptism, through the Holy Spirit, through that fellowship. Um, so it's not just an individual thing, but there's this fellowship within the body of Christ that supports us in the Christian life and in our Christian walk. And so finally, I'm going to go back and talk about Susanna's artwork and the Pates and Sailboat Races. Because the Holy Spirit comes down once and for all at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is available to us as well because we believe in Jesus. And there are these images that have been helpful for me in understanding, well, what does this filling look like? What does this entail? My sister is a very accomplished artist visually. And when, I was, when we were both in high school, she really loved pottery. So Susanna is my sister. That's why I put her name on, so you can remember. She loved pottery, and she's really good at it. She basically spent the whole day, she was smart enough to you know, get through all of her classes. Um, she spent more than half of her day in the art room in her senior year, and she would just create these wonderful masterpieces. And she continues to create today. If you ever see my office at the church, there's a big painting of hers in it, and it's magnificent. I think people, when they think, when I talk about her, they're like, oh, I'm sure she's really good. And then when they see her paintings, they, they say, oh, she's really good. <laughs> and she is really good. Well, her senior thesis at Amherst College was about the theme of the human body as a vessel. Because she was so interested in pottery and containers, you know, when she was doing that pottery phase. And so what she did, she made some pots, she painted some oil paintings, and then she also built these nine-foot-tall welded steel statues of pots that it had the sense of negative space within them, that there was an emptiness, and that they could be filled with something. So this whole theme, I think it was because as a Christian, she knows about the Holy Spirit. The amazing thing about God's Holy Spirit is that we are vessels for his Holy Spirit. He delights to um, send his Holy Spirit upon us. And there is, in that sense, a marriage of our hearts and spirits and flesh to his spirit. There is that union, and there is joy in that union, and strength and encouragement and empowerment. 
And so the other image I leave you with is that of the Payson sailboat races. This is our family reunion every year. The Payson family gets together on Cape Cod, and we have a, we have a sailboat race with all these little tiny sailboats that different branches of the family have. And they're not, we're not talking big, fancy sailboats. We're talking you've got to bail the water out of the sailboat to be able to keep it going. And, um, and there's maybe you can sit one or two people in the sailboat. So we have all of this whole fleet of little tiny sailboats. And it's a horrible thing because we always have it on the same day whether there's wind or not. So there you are, and you have to get, I, I'm, I love sailing, but I don't want to do any of the work. You have to get all of the rigging up, and I don't even know the words. You have to do the knots, and I don't know the knots. You finally get the sail up, and you're sitting there, and then it's terrible, it's a little scary for me, because I don't know what I'm doing when I sail. But um, you're sitting there, there's nothing happening, and then you push off, and the mast is up, the sail is up, and it's ready to go, and the wind just fills the sail, and the boat goes. And that's an image for me of the Holy Spirit. We're like those little sailboats, and the, the, you know, at, at Pentecost, suddenly the boats have been put into the water, pushed off, and now the Holy Spirit comes and fills us. And we might find, sometimes we feel like, well, where did, where'd the Holy Spirit go? My, I'm sitting here in the doldrums. And so we, what we can do as Christians is just pray and ask for more. Um, we're vessels, but we're vessels that are leaky vessels. And so we ask for more of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's just do that right now. We're going to pray, and then I'll let you go. I'm almost, I'm over right now. So let's pray right now, and um, you can go. And if you have any questions, you can stay back and ask me. Oh, so Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for all of your good gifts to us. Thank you especially for your life, your death, your resurrection. Thank you that even now, um, seated at the Father's right hand, your eye is on the sparrow. You watch us. You know us so well. You know us even better than we know ourselves. And so we know that you know our needs. We know that you hear the cries of our hearts. We know, too, that you, um, you give us good gifts. And so we ask. You say, ask, seek, knock. Well, we're asking. We ask for you to send your good gift, the gift of your Holy Spirit, upon us. We thank you, Lord, that we are heirs of your Holy Spirit. Uh, through faith in you. But even so, we'll ask again. We ask for more of your Holy Spirit today in our lives. And uh, give us signs. This will help us say, um, yes, God is with me. I know that. God is with me. So we ask this for your glory's sake and our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.